What a week in autism research. For those of you who missed the ASF Day of Learning on Wednesday, it was a great day. It was six presentations that were 12 minutes each. They were TED style with three minutes questions and answer. This day included an amazing lunch and there was also an awards ceremony for two leaders who helped people with autism obtain and maintain employment. While the videos will be posted on the ASF website soon, I'm gonna go through a list of them in about two minutes each so you can get kind of the gist. But please, you should really be watching them on the AutismScienceFoundation.org website in a couple of weeks. This is only meant to give you a little teaser. And if you're listening to this podcast and we're there, thank you so much for your support and I hope you had a great time. I also wanna thank Hannah Grossman who took notes so I could sit and listen and not forget anything for this podcast. So every year we ask the leading voice in autism science and research to give a summary of what we know now that we didn't know before and what's happened in the last couple decades to the past year of research that's really making a difference in the lives of people with autism. This year we asked Dr. John Spiro, Deputy Director of the Simons Foundation to give this summary. The Simons Foundation funds about $50 million a year of research in autism, second only to the NIH. And Dr. Spiro has this unique big picture perspective on this issue in many different areas. He pointed out that because of both private and public donations, genetics has made some big discoveries this year, like the role of specific types of mutations, as well as how they run in families. Also, there is now a list of genes that researchers know are involved in autism and those that they suspect are involved in autism. And these numbers are growing into the hundreds. So with hundreds of genes, some rare and highly penetrant, meaning they confer a strong risk of autism, and the other being common and seeing a lot of people, and it's the combination that confers an autism diagnosis, what good does this knowledge do for people? What difference does it make if you have an X, Y, and G gene mutations or A, B, and C gene mutations? Well, first, it's not all about genes. Genes can help understand how different environmental factors influence a diagnosis. Sometimes similar genes are turned on or off by environmental factors that are found in people with autism. That may be one mechanism. Knowing about the genes is going to help inform scientists about gene-environment interactions. And the environment is modifiable to some degree or some parts of the environment. You've all heard me pontificate about this enough, so I won't get into this anymore. But hashtag save the EPA. But a more direct influence is the role that these genes play in diagnosis. Right now, there is a lumping versus splitting controversy in autism. Should autism be lumped together into one diagnosis or split based on some factor? Right now, they're all lumped. Everyone has autism with different features and characteristics. But the value of this may be somewhat limited based on the information that clinicians have on individuals. For example, a flat autism diagnosis isn't going to help anyone. Maybe autism with intellectual disability, autism with early onset, autism with particularly abnormal social affect is going to inform particular services and interventions. So what can genes do? Well, genes can also help identify different types of autism with different needs, and it can inform therapies. Dr. Spiro gave an example of SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. The knowledge of this gene then led to a particular gene therapy, turned out to extend the lifespan and the quality of life for some people with this disorder. The same thing is going on with cystic fibrosis. 
Knowledge of specific genes is being used to help target those genes and help individuals with that gene. He pointed out that autism is still too far away from gene therapies. So if you hear about a gene therapy, be hopeful but cautious. But it's closer now because there's a understanding of the genetic influences of autism. So the next talks were more topic oriented and they include topics that have been understudied but have a great impact on families, gender differences, diet, pain responses in people with autism, adult outcomes, and yes, medical marijuana. We never shy away from controversy. But let's start with gender differences, given by Summer Bishop at UCSF, who was a PI on the Autism Sisters Project. Dr. Bishop is one of those few researchers who were studying girls and boys with autism before it became the hot topic. Are girls and boys with autism different? Well, yes, but how and when? Her answer, it depends on a lot of things. More boys are diagnosed with autism than girls, but that depends on how you find the girls. Do you go look for them actively, or do you let them come to you at a clinic? Also, it depends on age. How old is the individuals when they're being diagnosed? And how are they being diagnosed? For example, in some epidemiological studies, girls with lower cognitive abilities are overrepresented in the sample. There's this possibility that girls with higher cognitive functioning, those with, you know, above of, of 70 or even above 100, they may be missing from research studies and they may be missing from epidemiological samples. ASD is not the only relevant factor. Lumping by sex isn't necessarily always appropriate. Just like people with autism are different than typically developing people, males and females Boys and girls without autism are different from each other normally. Remember, isn't there a book that says something that women are from Venus and men are from Mars or something like that? Growing up as a girl is different than growing up as a boy, and we can't ignore these contextual differences. Their interests are different. Their in inherent abilities are different. So it's almost like autism is being layered upon male-female differences that are just there. Sometimes it's inappropriate to compare girls with autism to boys with autism because girls with autism are also girls. Researchers need to start comparing girls with autism to girls without autism. Next, Dr. Susan Hyman from the University of Rochester talked about diet. She's one of the few researchers to really address this in a carefully controlled way, and she's been doing it for a while. Food selectivity is very common among people with autism, and this dietary limitation may lead to a poor nutritional intake, and this is a health issue. This includes known deficits in people with autism with vitamin D, calcium, potassium, choline, and fiber. But guess what? These deficits really aren't hugely different from those without autism. The nutritional intake of kids in the United States today just generally sucks. But if it sucks, why doesn't it suck more? Well, nowadays, you're able to get some nutritional things in your diet through fortification. This is breading on chicken nuggets that's fortified with, say, folic acid and the flour and white toast and the flour and goldfish crackers. So that could be an explanation why everybody's diet sucks, but it's not exactly worse than those with autism. Now, something that's not talked about so much is that people with autism are at a higher risk of obesity, and that's sometimes blamed on antipsychotic medications, but that's not the only reason. It may be related to food selectivity or fewer opportunities for leisure and exercise. In response to these food issues and fear that things like gluten and casein may be hurting people with autism, many parents have turned to the gluten-free, casein-free diet. Studying these diets are hard. 
You cannot possibly be on a gluten-free, casein-free diet and not know it. It's impossible to blind it. But Dr. Hyman's group and her collaborators have been able to determine at least whether or not the gluten-free casein diets are safe. And yes, they lead to nutritional insufficiencies, but these nutritional insufficiencies are not different from those kids who are not on a gluten-free casein-free diet. However, that's not to say that they're right for every person and that people with autism who are on them should not worry. But frankly, we should be all worried about improving our nutrition. Another topic on the minds of families with autism is pain. Some parents report that their child does anything from smack their head on a table, break their bones, falls and calls injury without showing a pain response. People with autism who can't communicate sometimes don't tell you how much pain they're in. And those who can maybe have problems expressing that they're in that pain. So in some cases, treatment for pain, like going to the hospital, is a sensory experience far worse than the pain itself, so they just try to hide it. Can you imagine how hard it is to study this? Who wants to be in a study where someone is deliberately causing pain? Well, they are hard to recruit for, but that hasn't stopped Michelle Fela at Vanderbilt University, who's studying this thanks to an ASF fellowship. In addition to testing for pain thresholds, she looks at brain activity both during a slight pain response and the anticipation of that pain response in both people with autism and without autism. At Vanderbilt, she sees that people with autism say they're in more pain than those without autism, but when you look at their brain during that pain response, they're not processing the same as people without autism. In fact, when you look at the brain activity, it looks like, in fact, they're not even experiencing pain. How does this compute to each other? Does this make any sense? They say they're in more pain, but their brain isn't processing that pain? Well, that's for future studies, and she's going to be looking at facial expressions, heart rate, skin conductance, and other subjective measures to see what's going on, with the end goal being to develop new tools to discuss and treat pain. So next, Oren Davinsky talked about his experiences in studying medical marijuana to treat autism. Specifically, he is looking at cannabinoids. These are non-psychoactive components derived from the marijuana plant, which he has shown in clinical trials to be effective in treating epilepsy and certain genetic syndromes, and he is hopeful that the FDA will move towards approving this compound. If the FDA approves it, what happens to federal laws on medical marijuana? Well, who knows? But he actually presented this issue for more of a philosophical view. First, Medical marijuana is thought by certain audiences to be okay because it comes from the ground and it's green, so it must be natural. Well, it's not. Most things that we think of as natural aren't really natural. Marijuana is 15 million years old and has been highly bred to have specific chemicals in it now. It's like corn. If you looked at corn 15 million years ago, it looks nothing like the corn we have now. Humans don't look like humans of a million years ago. We have thinner jaws and skulls. We also have genetic protection against different diseases. In terms of marijuana, these compounds have hundreds of different compounds in them, some of which target our brain, which means our brain actually makes receptors for compounds in marijuana. Remember, cannabidiols are not psychoactive and THC is psychoactive. There's a possibility that in certain situations they may be working together, called the entourage effect, where maybe THC helps the effect of cannabidiols in the brain. He's just been studying epilepsy, and he's only been studying cannabidiols for treating autism and seizures, but he doesn't rule out THC. 
But in order to find out what symptoms it works for, how it works, and whether it works at all, it needs to be studied. Medical marijuana is approved for some conditions in most states, but it really lacks quality control and there's uncertain consistency. There's also a lack of safety data for THC. This needs to change. And I'm, I'm backing off and talking here. The medical marijuana laws are absolutely wacky in this country. And in order for there to be more research, they need to be relaxed. Not everyone has the persistence of Dr. Davinsky in dealing with the ridiculous regulations. Okay, back to the podcast. There's a desperate need for controlled trials that would convince the FDA and not only that, advance the science in this area. It needs to be better studied. THC may be working better for aggression than CBD, and it may be better for anxiety on animal model work, but that's yet to be really proven. Yes, there are so many compounds that need to be tested for autism, but none are as so controversial yet commonly anecdotally used by autism families as medical marijuana, and we need research. So somewhat related to the issue of medical marijuana is sleep. Dr. Ashura Buckley from the NIH gave a talk called Why Won't My Child Sleep? And just to be clear, she didn't study medical marijuana on sleep. It, it could help. But she talked more about why kids with autism do not sleep. Not every child with autism have sleep problems, but lots of them do. And this includes both getting to sleep and early morning or recurring awakenings. Now, she's studying the organ of interest, the brain, when studying sleep. And she studies the early postnatal period because there's a huge amount of postnatal growth in the brain and a rapid shift in sleep architecture. Disruptions in brain development, especially in the cortex of your brain, which is like your outer layer, could be contributing to sleep disturbances. She studies the brain using non-invasive measures of electrical activity called EEG, and she's found signals that are linked with different brain connections that are not functioning properly. Working with people at autism at NIH, she can actually identify someone with autism compared to somebody without autism based on their sleep EEG. It doesn't provide a specific diagnosis of autism because similar patterns are seen in schizophrenia. Her goal is to better understand sleep neurophysiology, brain waves during sleep, and that could be a biomarker of a structure that relates to specific sleep disturbance. Last, but certainly not least, was Julie Taylor, who talked about improving adult outcomes. She happened to mention at meetings that adult research is usually presented at the end, and she makes a good point. That was not intentional, and we certainly didn't plan to stick her in a corner at the end. We'll make sure that doesn't happen in future years. She didn't mean it as a dig, by the way, but her point was well taken. Many adults with autism struggle with lots of things, employment, post-secondary education, social relationships, financial independence, physical and mental health problems. The best predictor of adult outcomes is IQ as well as family socioeconomic status. So as an expert in adult outcomes and one of the few researchers, along with her postdoctoral mentor, who were the first to study these in a longitudinal way, she gave us the top three factors of interest that she thought could be changed and would make the most out impact on outcomes. So they are, drum roll, one, daily living skills. This includes daily hygiene, personal care, preparing food, managing money, and transportation. People with autism struggle here. Unfortunately, as IQ goes up, sometimes daily living skills are not improving. We need to do a better job at teaching these daily living skills, and yes, they can be taught. Number two, co-occurring mental health problems. If someone has a mental health problems, it's going to lead to a host of other difficulties in adulthood. 
Services for mental health problems need to be expanded. There's just no other way around it. And three, access to services. Adults with autism are not getting the services they need to reach their potential. And these include secondary education, housing, financial support like SSI and SSDI, conservatorship, employment, and special needs trusts, and medical issues, and access to medical care. So how do you improve services? Well, if Oprah Winfrey or Bill Gates was president, maybe she or he could give some of their piles of money to this cause and figure out a smart way to spend that money. But services are typically underfunded and not accessed. So Dr. Taylor developed a 12-week training program for parents to help them understand and navigate adult services. Helping parents is probably more realistic than waiting for Oprah Winfrey to become president and giving all her money to the U.S. government. This was a parent training plan, and after that program, she found out that individuals got one and a half times more services than they did without the training program. There was an increase in employment and post-secondary education. She also mentioned that transition services need to start early in high school, not the senior year. So that was the day of learning talks. But before we end, I do want to mention that ASF just announced eight new pre- and postdoctoral fellowships. I was going to describe them, but instead I'm going to wrap this up and add that they include research to use electronic health records to better identify individuals with autism, use of technologies to better describe and intervene on specific symptoms, studies of a gene called SCN2A that influences autism diagnosis and causes seizures. So understanding both things may lead to incredible breakthroughs. Also, there's a project on understanding social abilities in adolescents, both male and female. Females may not be diagnosed until their limited social skills is a real challenge, so it can be masked at younger ages. But as they get older and social demands become higher, then this becomes an issue. So luckily, we're funding a researcher studying different phases of social activity and monitoring brain activity to better develop specific social skills interventions. And finally, there's a study that's using previously collected brain activity scans to understand changes across the lifespan, particularly in critical periods of brain development. The study is going to compare girls with autism to girls with Rett syndrome, and girls with Rett syndrome go through a period of documented regression. So this data can be compared to those with autism to better understand regression on a biological level and how the brain changes. We are really excited and honored to part with two amazing organizations. One is the Rett Syndrome Research Trust, and the other is the Families SCN2A Foundation on two of these projects and I bet you can figure out which ones they're helping with. Thanks for listening this week, and there is so much going on this month that hopefully I can squeeze in some new stuff on research findings.